Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. My guest on today's show is the British sculptor Richard Wentworth. Born in the late 40s, he grew up in the suburbs of London and was educated at Eton and Middlesex University. He assisted Henry Moore as a teenager and in the early 80s, along with contemporaries Tony Cragg and Bill Woodrow, became part of the new British sculpture movement, which assembled everyday objects in pop, kitsch and witty ways and was seen as a reaction to the minimalism of 70s sculpture. Over the years, his prodigious output has seen him build sets for Roxy Music, work with Azadine Alaya, and teach at Goldsmiths University, where his students included Damien Hirst and Sam Taylor Wood, and he became known as a key influence on the young British artists. He has held major exhibitions all around the world, although perhaps his most enduring project is Making Do and Getting By, his long-running series of images of everyday objects used for something other than their original function a boot wedged underneath the door to hold it open, for example, or a cigarette stubbed out on an upturned bottle top. He has held eminent positions such as Master of Drawing at the Ruskin School of Drawing at Oxford University and Head of the Royal College of Art Sculpture Department, and he was appointed Commander of the British Empire in 2011. Recently, in 2018, he has worked with Hospital Rooms, the charity that revitalises mental health hospitals with contemporary art. I sat down with Richard one afternoon in summer to ask him about the objects that have been most meaningful to him in his life and that he would choose to put in the cabinet in the attic at 5 Carlos Place. I know everything about how this room is made and I could talk. I'm really fascinated by this fiddling with these beams and these bolts and I read that instantly. I'm not an architect, but I... So I know what's... The same way as I can look out of the window. I know all of that. So I can talk about something like that very easily. And I'm also amused that I know that. I know it the way the cat knows the quickest way to the food or that kind of thing. Um, I'm very... Also very interested in things that my children did, which have, have kicked about. They've never been framed. Or, but there are things which tell you how responsive. I really, I think I had a kind of rather uptight 50s childhood. I'm not, I'm not complaining. But I, when I had children who are your age, or probably rather a lot older. Anyway, how many children? Two boys, 35 and 38. And the 38-year-old has now got children. So I, I, I actually got a second childhood by having children and was amazed what fun it was. It was very irresponsible and there were lots of accidents, lots of things that shouldn't have happened. But the spirit of it, for me, was absolutely amazing. I've just started, <laughs> I've just started to ask them, how was it for you? And? and course, well, it's a delicate question. I, uh, I asked the eldest one last week, what about all the different people who looked after him in all the different ways? So, you know, this is 1980s knockabout London, 
after the world of the nanny and before the world of the nanny. Uh, so it's the world of... It's probably even seeing a sign in a um, newsagent that says... Probably didn't even use the word childcare. So all sorts of people came and went. No real disasters, but very interesting as a transaction. And of course, you realize that what that transaction is, is that it frees the parents, inverted commas, to have a life, possibly even earn some money, which then in turn makes them probably more interesting to the children, arguably. Um, but also, there's a hidden space where there are other people, and that's an unknowable space. So asking my 38-year-old, you know, tell me about Amy or Molly or Marcia. These or, are the nannies. Well, or the, the, they're people. They're people. I wouldn't, I've never thought You wouldn't of, have called them that? I wouldn't, no. Was it in London, North yeah. London? Yeah. yeah. No, no, in, in Knockabout, King's Cross, Islington. Um, but these are very delicate things to talk about because nobody knows how to talk about them because people are so anxious about perceptions of class and they can only seem to do that with a big C when in fact class is classification and we all do that to each other all the time I do that to the world of I know that the things in front of me I know which one is a glass of water I know which one is a cup of tea I know why the fruit is not the... See, I, I'm already nervous, so I don't want to say croissant. I want to say something American like the bakery items. <laughs> but that's because I'm evading, nominating what I know perfectly well they are. Why can't you call that panel raisin? <laughs> because I would you... say it, I would attempt to say it in French, so I would say pain raisin. And then I would think, I'll sound like a pretentious git in the recording. But I'm not a pretentious git. That's what they're called. And in fact, I don't think they've got one, but there's, a, there's one that's called a pain And maybe they have. There's a pain chocolat. But in some parts of France, they're called chocolatine. And if you use the wrong one in the wrong place, they will go, you are not from here. <laughs> but I'm really interested in, I think, what we're talking about is how we are located and that's not location 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 that is how do we recognize each other's energy gender sexuality little c class um intelligence education which is not the same thing. Um, Humour. And all that, for me, is where do you come from? And broadly, we're not able, or there's a kind of, we're in a sort of new Puritanism in which it's not very cool to say, where are you from? And of course, I know it's politic. I know it's the politics that surround that. But it's also incredibly disappointing because it's, it's, it's diminishing. If you like living in this city, so I'm a Londoner, 
and I'm a Londoner, as most people are Londoners, who failed to leave. So it's hardly, you know, my family have been here for generations. It's a, it's a condition of joining in. Um, it diminishes the pleasure of being inquisitive and the pleasure of sharing things with people who, by definition, are different. They're not you. So they are called somebody else. And I spend a huge amount of time being inquisitive and trying not to stand on the explosives, you know, trying not to upset somebody. And yesterday in the Caledonian Road, I was having breakfast and um, uh, I was actually having breakfast because I was sort of being polite, was connected to this work I just did in a school. And I know the man who runs it, who's Kurdish, Turkish. He's always incredibly gracious to me, and I'm always slightly embarrassed. He treats me like some local aristocrat. And I think he thinks I'm sort of from the media. And um, since Grayson Perry le lives opposite me, I could pretend, oh, we're all from the media. Um, but I, d that's not... Why are you so modest, though? Because you are a well-known and, and established artist in your own right. <laughs> well, I suppose I've got to finish the Kurdish story, yeah, but we'll do, the, no, no, we'll, do, no, we'll do them both. Okay. We'll do them both. I mean, I'm not modest. <laughs> I suppose if you're, if you fail to die for 70 years and you're moderately observant and you've lived in a big city and you understand quite a lot of things about that city and you can speak a few languages or you at least not frightened to have a go at speaking languages then you ought to inverted commas know your place so i don't i never googled myself i don't i, I would be horrified i think probably because i'm from i'm from the analog world so you had to meet somebody and know them and even ironically touch them you probably might have shaken hands with people and now we're in something which I'm not in. I mean, I'm probably represented there, but I'm not in it. And I, so I feel behind the curve of, of the culture, but I'm very watchful of what it is. And I, I'm not, I'm conservative in the most obvious sense with a small c. Uh, I'm not conservative. I don't, um, I don't want to sort of stop change. But I think there's, I feel as exhilarated by being alive now, probably more exhilarated than I did when I was living in London in the 60s, because I can see the compass of it. But, um, well, your, that, your question is actually quite brilliant, because I think... Sorry, that's a really awful politician <laughs> thing, but it is quite brilliant because one of the things we discuss a lot at home is the difference between self-esteem and arrogance. So self-esteem is completely unknowable. You know that you get up in the morning and you don't think you're very remarkable and you're a sort of smelly heap. And you can test that because if the postman comes to the door, which they don't anymore, but if the postman came to the door before you'd got up there's a kind of strange there's a very odd threshold experience and that experience is really that they are a public person and you're an extremely private person 
you look like a private person. In my case, what hair I have is on end. And you sort of even probably keep some distance because you feel like, well, I haven't washed or whatever. So I haven't done any of the ceremonies of getting ready for the, for the public day. And you negotiate it. And they are often quite, that's their job. They have to negotiate it the other way around. But it's a funny, funny space. That's a, self, a space of self-esteem. So it's like you, you kind of internally know you're not presentable. A baby wouldn't know that. Even a little child would barely care. There'll be a threshold moment where they do start to go, I'm not ready for the world. I can't go to school. Um, and all of that. And then at the other end is haughtiness or, you know, super-ego. Super and we're, all of us are dealing with that. We're all dealing with that. And we're, at home, we, we laugh about it a lot because we, we shout at the television because we can't believe, you know, who does this person think they are? Or we detect real quality. Is this all right, the sound? Um, or we detect real quality of conduct, perception, wisdom, yeah, wisdom's a good word, um, and we say, wow, they should get more people on who can do that, but it's very hard to find people who can do that, so, and I like, I suppose, to, to join in with this, I'm really interested in encounter, I mean, I'm probably mildly Tourette-ish, I say a bit more than I should, and I sometimes say things publicly that are a bit, not exactly extreme, but I'm not frightened to talk to an entire tube train carriage, you know, if they won't all move up and I'm in the doorway and there's three women in front of me who are virtually incapable of breathing, you know, <laughs> say something to these buggers reading their newspapers and looking at their phones. So I would, I, I did it last night. I said, would you all like to squeeze up like the rest of us here? And everyone started sniggering around me. And there were no trains. Everybody knew there were no trains. It was Farringdon Station. It was a bit nervous. And people were just, you know, it's like ordinary civil manners. Um, and there we were all like this. So I got at one stop, Farringdon to King's Cross, sort of sniggering around me. You know, crazy man has spoken. But actually only said what everyone's thinking. And I, but I am interested in encounter. I'm interested in, uh, there are no accidents, but the accident of something happening. And the city is obviously a good place for that to happen. And I get quite high levels of reward for being known in that way. Tell me a bit about the work you did with Azadine Elia. Well, As you know, I like encounter. I like, um, you know, that lovely English expression, accidentally on purpose. And um, somebody I knew and quite liked, but was a bit of a puzzle to me, said, um, oh, you're in Paris. Um, why don't you come and have lunch today? Um, uh, I'll come and pick you up. And I wasn't paying much attention. And I, I ended up, having lunch with Azadine Elia. And Azadine 
ran this sort of cross between uh, Gonzaga court and farmhouse kitchen world. <laughs> I just thought, this is just amazing. You know, I don't live like that. I get it. And I have a little sense of, if you like, the Irish country house. Oh, we all eat together, you know, since we're down on our luck. Where everybody's gathered around the table from the top, top of the household to the bottom of the household, and they're all there together. And there was something completely astonishing about Azadine. He was like a, a conjurer or a magician. And uh, as it happens, my wife had worked with Paloma Picasso in Paris. So there was a little bit of some kind of shimmer of comprehension between my wife and, and Azadine. And then this sort of very slow burn, he, he sort of was interested in me in some way. And I'm not from fashion. Obviously, I knew what he did. I'm very interested in how things are made. And I suppose I am very interested in how we conduct ourselves. So that obviously peels off into how we dress, how we walk, how we hold ourselves, what would be called manners, but in the really biggest sense. And I think that's a very interesting space. And then he said, why don't you come to the next show? And his, his shows were completely mad because he would go, I'm much too busy. I'm not going to do a show. And he was very rude about other people and it was always in French, but you know, he would say, all those riffraff out there, they have no idea what I'm doing. They can, they can wait. And he was always mischievous and, always, and very, you know, because he was very small, that made him also more enchanting, like a, like in, in fact, I've only just thought of this, it was a bit like as if Las Meninas had come alive and as it walked out of there, hugely intelligent and very widely knowledgeable. And then I probably went to three or four shows. I went to his last show. And then I, I made an exhibition with him. But I think the, there's something about, I think it was an incredible privilege to witness a way of living and a way, I'm sure he must have been all sorts of things that I don't know about. Maybe he could be monstrous, but there's something there that were, to use a very old fashioned word, was, was staggeringly cultivated and really beautiful to be near and incredibly encouraging. And, and I found out recently that the core in encourage is heart. You know, it's a really heartening. Uh, so whatever that would be, two or three years I knew him for. Um, and he could time anything. He died on my 70th birthday. So, you know, really fucked that up. <laughs> in the podcast, we want to talk, I was interested in hearing about some objects that you feel particularly interested in or that represent you or have inspired you in some way? Um, well, I suppose because I'm, inverted commas, might be known for it, I think the accident of my relationship to the bucket is perhaps worth saying something about. And the fact that everything, no matter how banal, Everything is full of meaning, and humans are incapable at looking at anything 
and not giving it meaning. I mean, it's so fast, way, way faster than the stupidity of speaking. And you can see that in a baby. I mean, the, the pleasure of watching a baby is that they kind of, they're completely alert, but they can't articulate much. And then they start pointing and they expect a response. They're kind of going far away. <laughs> and then they start blurting and they construct their world. And I guess, for me, there was a sort of period in which all of those things came together. So lots of things that were in my education. People I was taught by who were what we would call Europeans. So I was taught by Germans, French people, lot of emigre Jews. So I always was offered a sense of what hilariously was called the continent. Are you talking about your time at art college now? Even before, before, but I would say at art school I was, that was the period when those people were around and they weren't, you know, that one of the reasons they were around is they weren't dead. And they would often remind you of that, or they would talk in a way that reminded you of that. Which if you had a nice Southern English 50s childhood was quite, quite a thing to to recognise. But I think it took me a long time to internalise what I'm describing and then join that up. Probably partly by witnessing my children, my babies, well, our babies, and simultaneously realising how quite, uh, I want to say dumb things, but how, how redolent certain things are. So... If I, sit, if I talk about it now, it will sound like I theorised it, and I, my work is not theorised. It doesn't come from a, a study of something and then the desire to illustrate it. It's absolutely the other way around. But, I mean, <clears throat> for a very long time, during the summer, we have gone somewhere where there's no water and no power. And on holiday? Yeah, well, you would have to describe it as holiday, <laughs> but some people would call it hell. <laughs> but somewhere, inverted commas, nice, isolated, in, in a wood, in southern France, which just doesn't happen to have any kit. And the way that happened was a kind of family accident. It's not... There was... I would say there was plenty of folly involved and no money. Very, you know, the money is, was negligible. There was no, no idea of property. And it turned out to be a very formative thing because suddenly realised, well, why would, you, why would you want electricity? Or what, what, what's that for? And the, so none of that was being chic or even hippie-ish. It was sort of realizing, well, it's the summer. You don't. What is all that about? You can light a fire and you can heat some water. Where are you going to get the water? You have to collect it from the roof. You know, so ordinary, um, quite dumb. What I would call agricultural invention, unremarkable. Nothing you wouldn't find on a farm. You have a water bath and it's got water in it. And 
probably somewhere in that process, I started to, to really rethink what the history of fetching and carrying was, of how the world is made. So how far is something moved? How is it transformed? What happens during its transformation? Who does it? Who does it knowingly? Etc. So that's, in a way, that's really the history of vernacular architecture, which I don't think I really understood, but I do now. And part of that was realizing that carrying water is very, very annoying. It's incredibly, and you know, imagine saying that a hundred years ago, people would go, "What do you want?" Everyone carried water. Well, ninety-eight percent of the population were carrying liquids for the two percent who didn't know what that was and all i'm really suggesting is that there was a kind of reverie there about why is a bucket the size it is gosh this must be very old which it is um probably one of the oldest or you know, it's within a, within a um, typology that is very old. And you're suddenly off into things which are really to do with archaeology, I suppose, or, or I'm uncomfortable with terms like material culture, but of course it is material culture. And then I realised that all sorts of things that I had an idle curiosity about and knew little bits about were sort of coming together. So I willy-nilly I started to make things with buckets and I became mildly knowledgeable about bucket buckets but kind of like God's bad joke at exactly the moment when they were dying so I think there's something that is quite strange um, for artists across about a hundred years which is that they're in the forefront of of a technology you know they discover some new way of doing things they invent paint in a tube suddenly everyone is outside painting in the landscape plein air you know but most people wouldn't know that it was because of the tube because you could carry your paints out into the landscape so these things that would sort of propel things forward or warhol going oh screen printing you know this is really good fun um but almost as soon as those things get going, something else will start to kind of criticise it. And of course, that's happening in all tech. That's, what's, that's what capitalism is doing. Capitalism is just constantly knocking out the previous technology. So, you know, almost at exactly the point when I was really interested in this funny history of the tin bucket, not in a very... I was not going to museums or anything, but... And then, oh... They appear to be made of whatever the latest plastic was. And I don't have a criticism of that. I'm just saying that it was funny that these things are enthralled to, uh, to their time. So even the stretched canvas, you know, which in New York in the 40s and the 50s would have been part of the the garment business, you know, New York was a, a textile 
warehousing town, you know, go and get some canvas, you know, get some pieces of wood, dig, 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 dig stretch canvas. You know, it's hardly surprising that in 50 years that's turned into whatever it's turned into. It's certainly not the canvas that um, Rothko or Jackson Pollock would recognise. Is this what you want? Yes. I Give me another object that you'd like to um, attach some sort of significance to. Well, I, I think maybe a little bit... May, I think a good object to, um, to share uh, is the matchbox. So, you know, when, when I was a child, the matchbox was completely ordinary. A matchbox would only have been, wouldn't have been 100 years old. You know, it's matchboxes attached to various Swedish fortunes. And um, I think Miss, Mr. Matches was a, an amazing, you know, if not the richest man in the world, he was a kind of famous... I think he was a famous crook actually anyway i wouldn't have known that but the matchbox was made of wood it was made of a sliver of i'll guess poplar but i'm probably wrong and they worked out a way of folding a th this very thin veneer of wood into this little box and when people didn't have much to play with before everybody had lego people collected matchboxes and they collected them because they were they were rather like collecting stamps they connected you to the rest of the world they had point of origin they had they were branded but the word would not have been used they had interesting graphics um, and they were the instrument of lighting things and lots of things had to be lit and um, and they came probably in several different sizes and um, like every, every other object, they're extremely political. You know, the people who made matches were poorly paid and worked in factories which would explode and they were, everybody would die. And, but the, strange, the reason I mention the matchbox is it almost doesn't exist. Or if it does exist, it'll be a cardboard box and it'll be eminently sensible. And the reason it doesn't exist is because all the other forms of fire making have out outrun it so you know you buy a little I don't even know how it works but you a little sparky gas lightery thingy for probably a pound in a pound shop and so the match has suddenly become quite exotic you know this little tree with this little phosphorescent blob on the end looking a bit like a um, Q-tip, but smaller. And I think it, that's a funny... I, th I think only an old person can talk like this, and I'm only talking like this because you invited me to talk like this, but you suddenly realise what a... You know, th th these little boxes gave hours of fun. You know? Little boys kept things in these little boxes. You know, I collect small snail shells or foreign money or stuff. Um... And they were the sort of cupboards of memory. They were treasure. The, the word thesaurus. They were the, they were treasuries. And um, 
I suppose I, I don't have any matchboxes, or I'm not aware of having any matchboxes, but I'm really interested that these things have sort of passed out of culture. And um, maybe another object I could choose would be the postcard, because uh, a couple of weeks ago I had to talk to a school where the children were not much older than five, five or six, and I had found a postcard that was written in September uh, 1918. And it's written by a man who you can tell from the handwriting is not very well educated, but he can write. And he's writing to his wife. And so it's September the 4th, I think, 1918. So we know that September the 4th, 1918, is nine weeks from the end of the First World War. So, all sorts of obvious things. There's no one around who was in the First World War, or if they're around, they're unlikely to be able to be very eloquent about it. So we can all, or most people, can nominate what it was. A lot of people could tell you a lot of things about it. Probably the most appalling thing we ever let happen, arguably started by the British, by being super stuffy about the empire at a point when actually the empire technically was over. Discuss. But obviously we've all got connections to people who were either widowed or an old aunt we might have heard about who never married or never had a boyfriend or, uh, you know, so the whole of Western Europe and, and way beyond was implicated. Um, and it could be that because I'm born straight after the Second World War that I have an undue... Um, emotional... Uh, if not fixation, then a sense of it, uh, partly because I've got, I knew people who had been in it, but they never talked about it. Um, but in a way, for me, that it's a, it's a space that illustrates that all that history is, is you weren't there. And it would be much better if in school, just forget the subject and have a right on the wall, the door of one room, you weren't there, become a really popular subject because history is this condition of endlessly speculating about stuff that happened where there are a dozen points of view. And then you could look at it in a much more, with more vitality. Maybe that's a good word. And... Um, so this postcard, which is in the Bodleian, it says something like, uh, Dear wife, which in itself is extraordinary, you know, that that's how you might speak to your partner. Dear wife, uh, not much to report this week, seeing as I have not heard from you yet. I, I, um, I hope to hear from you soon. Uh, we have been having horrible weather 
Um, I hope it changes. Maybe next month will be better. Um, remember me to Bob and Dot. Um, and then he repeats himself. He says something like, I do hope to hear from you. Remember me to all. And I think, <clears throat> I think he, he ends by saying, um, it's something like your loving husband, Bert, or, you know, so that his name is a name that is typical of that period. You don't find that. Or, of course, you're beginning to find lots of young Berts because that's what naming does. Uh, and it's only upsetting to try and um, uh, rehearse him writing it. Um, because in a, in a completely ridiculous way, one is completely excluded from all those circumstances. You can't imagine what the physical circumstances would be in which it was written. I think it's in an, an indelible pencil that doesn't exist anymore. It's quite rare. Uh, he doesn't refer to the war at all, which, you know, for all I know, is happening while he's writing it, or, you know, in extremists. But of course, it could be written now. It could be written in Syria or in Kabul or, you know, somewhere where I'm not. So somehow stored in that postcard is um, admiration, respect, uh, guilt, shame, uh, wonder, uh, bemusement, you know, a lot of very odd emotional spaces that are all kind of clanking about. Um, and of course, my job uh, was to explain that to children who are under under six, uh, not get emotional, uh, project the slide, not smoke a pipe and go, in the First World War, people said, but somehow to tell them what communication is, which of course they know perfectly well, but most of them don't probably haven't sent a postcard and they, they might have been lucky to get one or two. So I was sort of nowhere trying to tell this and feeling idiotic. Uh, and during which time I asked them to, you know, I said, who's the oldest person here? And they went, you. And then I said, uh, okay, one by one you can guess my age. And then, you know, 190. <laughs> And then there was another, there were lots and lots of votes, some not far off my age, and then one, one that was rather brilliant, which was 41. And then you realise that, that, that their activity of being allowed to treat me as the clown, you know, the, the pantomime of the event, is sort of connected to all projection, connected to me wondering about 
people in the studio while I'm recording and what their lives are like and what this building used to do and who's in the train that just went past, you know, completely ordinary speculation, which has actually suggested another object to me, which would be, I think that my, another object could be any of the fabric which is dealt with so marvellously in a film called Disobedience, which I saw twice last month. And I was able to send postcards, actually they were texts, to people and saying, I've seen Rachel Weisz twice this month, and then went only on film. <laughs> and um, it's a film, actually it's a film about nonconformism and how conformist humans are, you know, that we, for the greater part, are trying to be enough like each other to conduct ourselves at any one moment and not let the other person down, but equally not let ourselves down. So that's a constant comedy. Um, and uh, I don't want to give, I don't want to be the spoiler no, of the spoilers, film, yeah. but... The film, I, I could say this about the film, the film, and I plan to write to the director and point this out, which he, and he's Argentine, I don't know very much about filmmaking, but I'm able to look at visual images and assess them. The film is absolutely full of sexual innuendo, um, which is as tender as it is funny. So the film is full of light switches, pairs of light switches, uh, finger plates on double doors, double doors, um, handles, uh, um, locks, lots and lots of implicit locks, keys, that's a brilliant keys moment. And of course, the, these are not only how we get hold of each other, but also the comedy of the world. You know, don't go up to the wrong side of the door, and, which of course happens, and find that there's no door handle. So that things are in fact handed and sided. And in the language of buildings, things are handed. And in the language of plumbing, and probably in the edge of electrics, things are male and female. And the film is absolutely full of this. And I don't know to what extent that was debated, or, um, you know, maybe I'm the only nerd who saw it. But when I went back the second time, all I could see was willies and clitorises or clitori or whatever they are um, uh, apertures it's incredibly understated and it's brilliant and it's terribly funny because you know we we behold each other and we have instant animal comprehension of each other it's, where it's so low in our psyche that it's it's formidable and we don't have any language for talking about it. And it's, and it's sort of lovely to be able to say that because I was listening 
to Jermaine Greer on the Today programme this morning where she was wrangling with all the questions surrounding rape. Yeah, I heard that. You know, she's a woman of my generation. And, it, you know, the, these are really important to, to raise these things and then push them back into the imagery of our lives and our perceptions and our misunderstandings and our understandings. It's really... It's, it's just incredibly important. And not, and not saying is really bad, but of course saying is really embarrassing. Even some of the things I've just said, I'm thinking, oh, you don't say that on air. I think, say it, say it, because if I can think it, why should I not articulate it? Um, and I think this is all back to my sense of, you know, if you took a, but in front of me there's a cup you know the cup has a thing called a handle it's because you pick it up with your hand so the language is completely loaded it has a thing called a lip we don't like drinking out of cups with chips we i don't mind but i would turn it around to where it wasn't chipped i'm not i don't have the deeply anxious modern idea that the chip is festering and I will get Novichok from my next <laughs> cup of tea um, but this this question of perception and looking and uh, materiality and warmth and temperature last night when I seemed to be the only person who was going to actually say something to an entire carriage on a train that everybody knew was the last train. Why don't you all move up? Make some space for everybody else. Or whatever it was I actually said spontaneously. There was a sort of funny moment of thinking, should I or shouldn't I have done that? So I was pushed back into my own sense of, of conformity. And in the journey, which is a particularly interesting journey because it's the very first underground railway, so you're always conscious that you're in a slot in London that was put there in, 18, in the 1860s. So it's well old. And I suddenly became really aware of how hot the man next to me was. And I'm not somebody who gets terribly excited about being next to other humans in the tube. Disgust. <laughs> but, because it's not properly discussed, but I suddenly thought, God, this guy is really hot. You know, the kind that refers to temperature. And I was thinking, bloody hell, you know, he should see a doctor. By which time the, the doors opened and we all got out. That doesn't happen very often. But the point that I'm making is that we have a dozen perceptions like that a day, very low in our animal intelligence. And we don't raise them up high enough to give them, to voice them. And we probably never voiced them. They're just there. And I never expected to talk about it. And maybe it, that'll be the end of it. But these things are really important. Very interesting. What is one, what, a fifth object? Um, oh, I know. Well, 
I'm an ungardener. So that means I know a lot about plants. I can name a lot of plants. I can hate a lot of plants. I really dislike a lot of lot of plants. Um, they're not nature. Plants are things we allow. We control them. If, there's, if, if you're listening to this and you're looking at a tree, it's because we didn't cut it down. It's not because it's so natural. So we're living constantly in a kind of farm or you know wherever agriculture meets horticulture and that's why people in cities who get hysterical about cutting down a tree you know get a life you know cut the tree down and plant 10 more make it a law all tree removal requires putting 10 more on the planet because that tree was a baby it grew up it got old it's lovely it's going to die and a lot of trees don't actually live very much longer than we do there are some exceptions. But we don't talk about that because we're panic-stricken about the planet because we fucked it up. And so there's a whole conversation about us in relation to plants. But I'm a scavenger and a finder and a kind of I wonder what that is person. And in Berlin, when it was uh, still a ruin, in 1990. Three. Just when you were living there? Uh, when I was living in Berlin in 1993, when it was kind of chic and amusing uh, and there was no Ryanair and most of the people who think Berlin is wonderful and know that make it wonderful and live there had perhaps not even been born and I was just, uh, well, I was very, somebody very kindly invited me to be there and I was there for a bit more than a year and very strange an experience it was. Um, so I, a lot of my time was spent really wandering in the ruins. What is this? You know, were the pigeons communists or were they American colonial subjects? And you can't ask the pigeon, but the pigeons flew backwards and forwards and you're thinking, I wonder what that was like, you know. <laughs> And then, of course, I knew that it was a place of great harshness, but it's also a place, I think, by implication of great eroticism because it's, it's weird because you mustn't, you mustn't touch them because they're the other side. Um, Are you talking from the perspective of, them, of being German by then, do you mean? I think Germans were at that point still entirely weird to right. me, even though nearly... My list of friendships is probably topped by Germans. I've probably got more German friends as a, as a group. Uh, and it was the Germans who made modern London fun. You know, it was German artists who didn't want to be in Germany because they didn't, they probably wouldn't quite say it, but they found it a bit too conformist and they came to London and they knocked about and they, they brought an energy here that, which, you know, so did other groups of people, but they're an important group. Anyway, I would sort of wander around and I would do what I always do, which is to kind of wonder why things are like they are. Why is a German brick different from a British brick? Even in its chaos, why was it so well organised? 
um, or relative chaos. Um, and also wondering what was going on, trying to work out what was going on, and knowing that I was like a spider, you know, that I was a kind of interloper who was inhabiting this space. And I found some window boxes or pot pl pot pots that had somehow been thrown away, you know, urban dumping. And um, one of them had an interesting looking little plant in it. I don't know what it was. Anyway, I probably, I just took a couple of these things back to my apartment and um, in Helmstedtstrasse, um, nearby Rischerplatz. And, you know, I like, I think I'm a bit of a sort of, I like saving things. You know, I probably took a tiny little bit of root, cut most of the green stuff off, put it in the pot, wished it good luck, poured a bit of water on it. I mean, I'm not, I don't know about the chemistry of growing things very well, but I like that thing of, of getting the plant. Anyway, somehow this, I had my wife's VW Beetle in Berlin, which was a rather odd re- sort of export-import and at some point I must have driven back and this plant came back with me I, you know, unremarkable this plant inhabits the entire street I live in <laughs> it's as you might say, bloody everywhere and it's very, very old and I know from a friend that it's called St John of the Wall so it's a kind of it likes living in shit. It likes hanging out. You, you can find it in... I've seen it in Cyprus. I've seen it in... You know, I've seen it in ruins all over. You find it growing in the wall. It doesn't need a lot of rainwater. God knows what it was doing in this plant pot. Da -da -da -da. And it's not the scourge of the street, but I can't walk the length of my street without seeing it and I think it's incredibly poignant and of course that's the history of of English horticulture is basically tooling around nicking something yeah. taking it back from China and then wondering why you hate rhododendrons in Surrey but discuss I think that's a good place to end. I'm a horse. I'm not surprised. But Thanks. you're very, very, very Thank good you. at it. Thanks oh. very much. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man and the hashtag 5CarlosPlace. Thanks for listening.